Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and a bunch of other stuff, and I'm back home again. And with us this week, we've got two guests. So if they want to say real quickly who they are. I'm uh, Luis Villasenor, uh, founder of Keto Gains. I uh, live in Mexico. And I'm Tyler Cartwright. I was a competitive powerlifter in high school, early college that got extremely fat and then quit being extremely fat. And now I help people to get out of their own way. Cool. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys for being here. We're going to do your origin stories and then in the topic of the day we're going to talk about the controversial item of ketogenic diets and maybe touch a little bit on things that people can do if they opt to do a ketogenic diet maybe electrolytes some other stuff like that actually mike the news the one piece of news i have might add to that controversial thing Um, Ah. and i welcome everybody to talk about it but i i was scanning um this month's um Food Technology Magazine from IFT.org. Um, and they have a piece in here on consumer trends from Elizabeth Sloan, and it's called Diet Hopping. So let me just share some of this. Strength and Muscle Sport News. It says, experimenting with a variety of diets is, of course, popular. According to the Hartman Group's Health and Wellness 2019 survey, Half of adults have tried a new diet or eating approach in the past year, up from 40% who did so in 2017. Young adults were the most likely to try diets, uh, and then they broke it down by generation. Um, The youngest fully adult group would be the Gen Z group. So 69% of Gen Zers are trying uh, new diets, 65% of millennials versus 42% of Gen X people. So I think that's me and you, Mike. Um, Probably. And then... Only 34% of baby boomers trying uh, new Hmm. diets. It says, health and wellness has replaced weight control as the top reason to try a new diet or eating regimen. And then they have some other statistics here. It says 12% have tried a low-carb regimen, 9% intermittent fasting. And then they go down this big list. I think that's – I'll just stop with those two for right now. But it says – What is different from previous dieting behaviors is that only 3% of those who try a diet 
stay on a specific diet or eating plan exclusively. And then maybe we can even talk about is that good or not good. Um, They're sort of suggesting at least that this might be good. They're saying one in 10 people describe their eating as flexitarian, meaning mostly uh, vegetarian with some animal proteins mixed in. Uh, And then they go on to say, just some other data, in January of 2019, so almost a full year ago, U.S. News and World Report published an expert review of the top 41 diets. Uh, They named the Mediterranean diet as the best diet um, for a variety of reasons, including compliance. They ranked the keto diet 31st out of 41, uh, and, and they ranked paleo diet 38th out of 41. Now, this is interesting because, of course, they're not polling only fitness and physique type people here, right? So there could be some differences, gen pop uh, versus our listenership, I suppose. Um, but I thought that was interesting. I would have thought that the low carb and the keto thing would be even a higher percentage. I mean, you walk into the grocery store, even restaurants, and they have a lot of low carb options now. Um, but they're suggesting, at least in parts of this article, that that might be more a thing of uh, restaurant or labeling and maybe less so in people's actual homes. Um, mm. and they talk and about that ranking lines. was based on the people who are actually doing it or kind of what they considered quote unquote, the best diet. Yeah. It just says an expert review of the top yeah. 41 diets. Again, to quote this here, naming the Mediterranean diet as the best diet overall, followed by the dash diet and then flexitarian eating plans. Um, mm. it, did they get this information again? This is from the Institute of Food Technologists, so IFT.org, Food Technology Journal. Um, It says the Mediterranean diet was cited as the best for diabetes, best for healthy eating, and easiest to follow. So that's why Mm. they like that. I think the Mediterranean diet is almost an ongoing – people woke up to that, it seems to me, like at least a decade ago. And it's just... I think even more. I, I recall it as early as the 80s. Yeah. No, I agree. It's been at least that long that I've seen it as a popular thing. I mean, at nutrition conferences, of course, people have been talking about this forever. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the you know the olive oil and the monounsaturated fat, yeah. vegetables, yeah. seafood. Fish I mean, content. Yeah. It's also because uh, I was t- once talking to a doctor and um, he said that it's uh, also because of what it represents if you think about uh, the idea of the mediterranean you immediately think about the greeks and the romans and uh, you always picture them as being fit and their way of eating also being uh, healthier mm-hmm. so it's just something that goes hand in hand yeah i think the, yeah. the longevity and the lower incidence of chronic diseases in that area is also like a big deal you know so yeah yeah some of that might be the blue zone epidemiologic studies to probably get wrapped was, up in there too. <laughs> exactly what I was about to say, Lonnie. It was, you know, that was, you know, I think it depends on, are we, one of the challenges with defining the Mediterranean diet is it seems to be seasonal, right? You know, like they, they move through seasons of fresh foods and fresh meats and fresh everything. And so there's not really one pinned down Mediterranean diet. And I would also throw in there that paleo and keto i've said for a while that paleo jumped the shark when people stopped asking should i eat this and started asking is it paleo (laughs) and i see this i see this same behavior happening in the ketogenic space these days and i would ask you know hey how are we defining paleo how are we defining keto are we defining it as some stupid arbitrary ratio number that was based on you know intractable seizure disorder for children 
Or are we doing something closer to what Dom D'Agostino would call like a modified Atkins approach or whatever? So, uh, you know, the devil's always in the details. It's sort of like when they, you know, they teach you in statistics that how you structure a question often leads to the outcome that you want. Um, You know, I think I would be really curious to look at how they pose those questions to the individuals just in general. I would think they would almost have to do a little um, education session first, like defining each of these things. Because if you ask someone, do they eat paleo? I cringe to think what they even think that means, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I like it. even in this uh, in the states, which is uh, I think uh, the, the the country where paleo is more popular, when you ask people what is paleo, like you're gonna get like 15 different answers. Yeah, yep. Now here's a, a quote that you guys could um, comment on too, I suppose. But it says, according to Data Essentials 2019 new healthy keynote report, nearly two thirds of adults are simply not interested in keto or paleo or Atkins diets. So, hmm. and again, I wonder if the average consumer could even answer this accurately without some type of operational definition presented to them first. Yeah. You know, yeah. so. Well, you know, I would, I would also raise my hand and say, I would say that that many people aren't interested in anything diet related. And that word diet has moved from, a, you know, from a denotative meeting to a connotative meeting in our minds, right? Like we see people in the diet community going, oh, it's not a diet, it's a way of life or a way of eating. And I'm like, first of all, don't create an acronym that spells out woe. But, um, (laughs) you you know, like, don't... (laughs) The word diet just means how you routinely eat, right? Like, so I I get squirrely about anytime somebody's like, oh, I am this. Like, it feels to me like it's elevated beyond just the crap on my plate and starts getting into the realm of sort of pseudo-religion. So that gets... uh, to be honest, and Mike, we've talked about this before, my hat yeah. is up any time that there is a zealotry involved in diet, it seems to be a completely lost cause. There's actually a short clip in on ironradio.org, Jaya Dixit, who's sort of a friend of the show, um, she actually did a piece on almost just that, like the social value judgments that are often assigned to different foods. You know, like people, mm-hmm. they very conspicuously will do food blogging, say, look what I'm eating, and maybe not quite as loose as the way Mike or I might do that, which is sort of like, hey, I'm traveling. This looks cool, you know, but it's more yeah. <laughs> it's more like, um, look, this this represents me, you know, and it becomes this sort of value judgment that they apply. The reason I brought up this article at all from Elizabeth Sloan here, and again, uh, we've talked about the Institute of Food Technologists before. Their food technology journal slash magazine, it's a nice mix of market trends and some evidence-based science and whatnot, but um, – Let's see here. They actually have a pull quote, and this is what caught my eye. It says, what's different from previous diet behaviors is that only 3% of people stayed on a specific diet or eating plan exclusively. <laughs> and the reason I thought about that and I thought about you guys and or anything keto-related is because I would think that if you want to become fat-adapted or get into ketosis, that's not the kind of thing you can pussyfoot around and just decide to eat You know your um, – your lucky charms for breakfast on a semi-regular basis, you know, that sort of thing. Um, because then you're going to kind of break yourself out of this metabolic adaptation. I would think if you're too flexible, you, you know, it, it's by definition, it's going to limit your, your specificity to a low carbohydrate, higher fat type of, whether it's digestive enzymes or metabolic enzymes in your tissues, 
all this sort of thing, you know, like yeah. I, I'm not sure. And and again, this 3% compliance, that seems really bad, although they're suggesting that flexibility is sort of good. I, they're not really suggesting it's bad, but I would think with keto especially, wouldn't fl- eating all kinds of different things, wouldn't that be quote unquote bad? Wouldn't that be non-compliant and sort of ruin the effect? I think yeah. in context, yeah, I think context really matters here, right? Um, you know, we've got clients, uh, high-level competitive athletes, and, you know, Mike, we were talking about this on the stage at AHS, right, who are routinely eating, you know, 150, 200 grams of carbohydrate a day, and they're still ketogenic. I mean, still testing with urine and blood, we can verify they're ketogenic. They're just doing massive volume of work. But for the average sedentary 50-year-old sitting at a desk job, um, yeah, exactly. They don't have that flexibility to go and eat Lucky Charms in the morning without potentially creating issues with the overall health of their diet. Um, but I tend to be kind of, uh, you know, if you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. But uh, trying to straddle both sides of one fence just leads to sore crotch is kind of the way that I've used that expression <laughs> before. And I think that it's true of any diet, right? You can't be partially vegan. You, you, you can't be, you know, partially carnivore. You can't be, you know, you, you, the only place where you really can do that is in a space where you say, I'm just going to be intentionally agnostic and eat to my macros and focus on nutrient density and eat whatever the hell I want, which is a completely rational approach as long as you can do all three of those things. But Luis, I, I think I cut you off. Yeah, yeah no, I have a little bit, bit of a different uh, take on, on the subject. And uh, here, like it, it's like like Tyler said, it really boils down on the context. And let's look at the context, probably that that it's uh, in the line of consumers here. They want to follow a diet to lose pa- uh, weight, body fat mostly, because again, people don't really understand the difference between body fat and total weight. But let's say they want to lose weight, uh, so they see this new diet and they try it they probably don't get the correct information on how to do it properly because they're, you know, getting the information from, uh, I don't know, uh, Reader's Digest or whatever magazine or, or blog post they are reading at the moment. And so they do it for maybe one week in whatever they understood, whatever way they understood, right? Uh, but then they get another magazine that tells them uh, the keto diet will kill you and it will destroy your kidneys. And then they switch the diet either because of that or because they didn't lose the weight they wanted or they didn't like the diet, whatever, right? So that's why I see a lot of people, you know, a diet hoping uh, from one to another. Then the other thing is we understand and uh, I think we all agree here that the main driver for fat loss is energy balance, caloric deficit, right? Uh, So even though they may be some um, theoretically – uh, benefits from doing a ketogenic diet in which you probably burn a little bit more or less or whatever because, again, uh, th- there are no conclusive studies that a, a ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting are inherently better or that you will burn more fat or whatever. Uh, yeah, that in, in, in that case, of course, uh, you need an adaptation enzymes, like you said, uh, mitochondrial density, whatever adaptations need to occur, they need to take time. But again, uh, people are just changing the way they eat in a sort of artificial way. They are still eating uh, cookies. They are still eating uh, chocolate, but they just 
eat those with different ingredients. They are not changing their habits. They're just changing ingredients. And so you can get fat on a keto diet. You can get fat on fast by fasting. You can get fat on carnivore. You can gain muscle. You can gain super fat. I've done it. So that's something that people don't understand. They just switch the diet because they think that's the one that will probably get them results without changing their lifestyle or their habits and that they're, they're still chasing that magic bullet. But again, they're still eating the same crap as always. Look at, uh, go, go to Whole Foods right now or go to any Walmart and just look at the many countless uh, keto products. They're, you're still going to get bread. You're still going to get Twinkies. You're going to steal everything. The same that happened with paleo probably five or six years ago. And if you look at the ingredients, if you look at people eating them, like, okay, you can probably eat one uh, piece of dark chocolate, but you see how people actually behave. And I'm saying this not just from the tip of my tongue. I, I, this is, these are real stories from our clients. And they eat five tops of a halo top because, you know, it doesn't have any carbs. It's the same behavior that happened in the 80s when we were told that fat was bad. You ate the whole jar of cookies because it didn't have any fat. That's basically how I got overweight in the first place. I didn't understand the concept of calories. I didn't understand the concept of energy balance, but I did understand because that was what I was reading and what was told uh, to me by nutritionists and by the TV and everywhere else that fat was bad. And all the products were labeled uh, low fat or no fat as though people understand that they can eat as many as they can or as they want because there are no fat. And now the message is the other way. It's no carbs. And people are eating all of them just because there are no carbs. They think that it doesn't matter. So it's just this um, uh, this missing of energy balance, which is not, again, uh, or negating it, which is uh, which people are not understanding because we, there's no real nutrition education everywhere that I know of. Uh, and, and that's what I see the biggest problem. Yeah, I can say just to wrap this up, I mean, cause that, this is the only piece of news that I, I have and then I'll, I'll zip it. Uh, but it's very common, of course, among physique competitors to progressively pull carbohydrates out of their diet. They'll either do it cyclically or the way I used to do it was week to week, you know, for maybe two, three weeks, I'd be 50 grams of carbohydrates lower than the stage before. And then after a couple of weeks on that, I would go down another 50 grams daily and that sort of thing. But the point being is, yeah, I couldn't, by pulling out those carbohydrates, I couldn't just go hog wild on handfuls of nuts and peanut butter sandwiches and a bunch of other things and just bring the fat completely up to replace it. The point of pulling out the carbs was partly hormonal, but it was also partly getting in a negative energy balance, right, by not consuming mm -hmm. them, you know, so... But yeah, like I said, so that's it. I just thought that'd be interesting food for thought. Just some uh, survey data from ift.org. Yeah, interesting indeed. Very cool. Um, so if we want to get into, just tell us a little bit about kind of your origin stories for people who mm -hmm. may not have heard of you, kind of how you uh, ended up where you're at. And I'll have Louise started and then we'll go to Tyler. Okay. Sure. Basically, uh I was a fat kid at school. I wasn't really, you know, as obese as uh, like a, when people, people think about a fat kid. Well, we think about, you know, what we see today, right? Uh, think of me as, I don't know, uh, the guy from the Goonies, uh, the chunky guy, right? But uh, we're talking about probably early 80s. 
So at that time in Mexico, uh, there were only like, if I recall correctly, like two or three fat kids at my school. So I was one of them, right? So I wasn't uh, really popular, was always picked a bullet to a point, uh, didn't really play sports. Uh, but I've always been curious and I, you know, like to read uh, whatever I, I can get my hands on uh, from uh, comic books to uh, magazines uh, to encyclopedias for real. Uh, like Encyclopedia Britannica? Britannica. Or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for real, when we used to travel, I used to carry one volume of those because, you know, uh, we didn't have internet in the in the early 80s. Uh, so... I love to read everything that from you know from all parts of the world. I'm, I'm someone who is super curious. I like to learn how everything functions. So yeah, I was a, a fat kid. Uh, but then uh, one year, I just uh, something clicked in me. Uh, probably uh, because watching you know uh, too many Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, uh, the, looking at him and cartoons, and you know seeing all the muscly guys on, on comic books, I decided that I wanted to be like them. So I started in my with my reasoning to sort of exercise, uh, do some cardio. I bought myself uh, one of those Nordic track machines again in the 80s. And I uh, said, OK, I'm going to only play video games while I'm on the Nordic track machine. So you can imagine that was a, a very uh, a feat by itself. You know, uh, if you're familiar, it's uh, like a, a ski machine. So you have to use your hands and your legs. So doing that while you're playing a, a video game is, is quite taxing. So uh, I lost my few pounds with that, but again, it didn't really do anything nutrition-wise because I didn't really change my habits. I really didn't understand how it worked. Uh, I recall asking my mother to take me to a, a dietitian. Uh, she took me to this fat lady. Uh, again, no offense intended, but just the fact that that's how, how she was. She was quite obese for standards. And uh, when I saw her, it was like probably nine or ten at a time, I don't recall. Uh, I asked her, so you're telling, you're going to tell me how to lose weight. Why are you so fat? <laughs> it's like, a, a, and it was was one of the things that marked me and sparked me to start to do my own research and learn how to do things like uh, like if it's not working for her, why is it going to work for me? And it really didn't work. And just you know to don't stay to, to go uh, cut a little uh, this a little bit short. Um, I lost some weight. Uh, then um, I went from uh, like a, a fat to chubby. Then in college, uh, I was not that fat, but you know due stress and things going on at the time i discovered a health unhealthy way to do intermittent fasting which is called anorexia uh, so yeah i lost everything i lost all my weight i i had been doing some strength training i started lifting when i was 17 so i lost everything uh didn't have energy to do anything um so it was like damn it i i think i'm going way too far my hair started to fall off and so I just basically went uh, the next day to uh, the library and started getting some books on nutrition and how to, uh, you know, how the metabolism works and how to start, uh, you know, uh, lose fat healthy. I was studying business administration at the time, but I started going to lectures about nutrition and um, everything else with some friends that were taking the course at the time. Uh, and so I started studying nutrition by myself. And by chance, I started hearing or discovering uh, 
uh, low-carb approaches to dieting done by bodybuilders, and that really interested me, which as probably a lot of people know, they do a depletion workout, a depletion diet, and it ends up being uh, basically a ketogenic diet. So it's a high or moderate protein, uh, high fat, uh, basically no carbs except some veggies diet. As in some cases, a, a PSMF approach, which is a protein sparing modified fast. In some others, they do a little higher fat, whatever. But I started experimenting with it. That eventually led me to research more. At the time, they, we just uh, had started to get internet uh, here basically joined a few internet forums uh, that talk, talked about bodybuilding. And again, I found that they used uh, this sort of diet for contests. And uh, I started reviewing that it's sort of in a way uh, like a, the diet that I liked. And I let, let, let me say that I was a, keto, uh, a closet ketogenic dieter because I just ate meats and chicken and green vegetables uh, and the fat that came with them uh, and basically it was doing my version of keto but didn't tell anyone because every time that i started to talk about it you know everyone shunned me and uh, said i was gonna get a heart attack and whatever so i just decided not to talk about it and just eat my, the, the way and people really didn't notice or up to a point and Basically, that got me a lot of results. I managed to lose a lot of weight. I managed to gain a lot of muscle because I was doing strength training at the time. And eventually, the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a website Reddit, I uh, found it uh, looking for other things. And um, there was this uh, forum for the keto diet. And I started to read it. I don't know even why I got there. And I was like, hey, this is the diet that I do hey, they're doing the same things that I do. And um, I found a lot of people asking questions about if you want could build muscle with, uh, with keto, and they were saying like, no, you cannot. It's only for fat loss. And it's like, but I've done it for the last uh, 12 years or 10 years at the time. Uh, I started posting my pictures, my story, and it sort of from there, people started asking me a lot of questions. Eventually, I decided to open my own uh, subreddit or forum, which is uh, how, in, in a way, Keto Games was born. Basically, answering questions, explaining people how to do things uh, properly, experimenting, because at the time, we didn't also ourselves have all the, the answers, and we still don't. We are still experimenting and tweaking things as we go along. And so from um, just, you know, help trying to help people empirically and without uh, much credentials, it became uh, what we are now, which is a company that uh, works with about, uh, hires about 25 persons worldwide between coaches and developers. And we help people change their diet habits and, you know, gain strength and change their, their, their mindset and many other things. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, what's your background, Tyler? How did you get into this space and then... Uh, correlate question to that is how did you meet up with Louise? Um, when I was 17, I was an almost 1800 pound three lift guy. I was, uh, doing everything under the sun. I was going to go be the strongest human being on the planet because I just kind of had a natural affinity and a natural build for carrying weight. Um, so that, uh, kind of parlayed its way into my stopping lifting, stopping football, because I discovered that I really liked pizza and vodka. 
when I went to college and I did a whole lot more of those types of uh, lifts than I did with anything related to iron and uh, got exceedingly fat. Uh, by the time that I was 30, I was over 500 pounds. And, uh, you know, there's one thing that us competitive lifters know how to do. Um, we can put away food for sure, especially during bulk cycles. And so that kind of reared its ugly head. Uh, and when I lost the competitive aspects of football and powerlifting, you know, what I, what I developed was self-competitive eating. And so I was the other side of the coin. I was actually, uh, sort of what I guess I would call binge eating or just chronic excessive overeating because, you know, self-medicating with food and booze is totally not something we ever do in the society. But, uh, but yeah, so I, uh, actually set out trying to prove that this diet was stupid and dangerous and that ketogenic diets, you know, all the same narratives, all the stuff that we're still being, uh, being criticized for these days, um, you know, were, were facts and that there was no safe way to do this. And yeah, I was wrong. And when I realized I was wrong and I actually started trying this, um, you know, bumps and bruises along the way because there were really no written materials apart from Lyle's book uh, that were on the market back then. And uh, yeah, so started surfing the internet looking for a community of people that, that thought like I did. And honestly, there were a number of communities out there that were into this belief system that insulin was the only reason we were obese and the calories don't matter. And I, honestly, I, I just almost couldn't. And then I stumbled... Uh, pretty early on into the Reddit community at Keto Games and struck up a friendship with Luis that transferred over to Facebook. Um, you know, and it's one of those things where most of our early conversations were just obscure Transformers references or G.I. Joe references or stupid 80s pop culture stuff from goofy movies that only we have seen. And, uh, you know, it's funny. So a couple of years ago, I went down to, well, it's been several years ago now, to visit Luis in Mexico City. And you can always tell kind of where a friendship is or where a relationship is based on how you interact when you've been apart or when you've not met each other before and kind of how does that, that online presence transition into real life presence. And it was honestly like just going back and visiting a cousin I hadn't seen in years. And so, uh, you know, just continued to chat and the community continued to grow. And then we kind of got dragged into coaching people and realized that, Hey, if we're going to coach people, uh, you know, we definitely need to make sure that we know how to coach people. Um, you know, as a son of two teachers, I kind of grew up around educating and, uh, you know, Luis and I both share an affinity for books. I think at last count, I have about 2,300 books or so in my personal library and, and so, uh, yeah, I like to read too. <laughs> and so it just really turned into, Hey, if we're going to do this and we're going to coach people, then we need to make sure that we're not abandoning the world of science and reason and rationality in favor of some fanciful definition of a diet. Um, like we said, we coach you know, 600, 700 people at any given point in time, the team continues to grow. And, you know, honestly, it's it's interesting when you don't take a dogmatic approach or definition to a ketogenic diet, just how flexible this approach really becomes and how well it fits into a whole lot of lifestyles. I mean, we coach everybody from super obese individuals. I think the heaviest we coach was about 735 pounds. 
um, all the way through, you know, high level MMA and competitive athletes, stage athletes. Um, and in that case, you know, Lonnie mentioned before, it's in a lot of those cases, it's punctuated, right? So we work with them during their off season and then we turn them over to their actual lifting coach or their actual prep coach for, you know, for their in season work. But at the end of the day, it's done in collaboration, which if you had told me that was going to happen 10 years ago, I'd have called you an abject liar. So, uh, it's just been an interesting, uh, it's been an interesting ride for us. Very cool. And we'll take just a super short break and then we'll get into the topic of the day here, which is just talking a little bit more about what you guys do and around the ketogenic diet. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Stop feeling. Some of us don't understand how lucky we are to be living in this. Land. Hi, listeners. This is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or... Click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. 
this can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, we're back with uh, Luis and Tyler here from Keto Gains. And we're talking about the topic of the day is ketogenic diet. And my first question, I'll pose this to Luis and then Tyler can add in. I know you guys have a little bit different definition of a ketogenic diet. And to be honest, like the first time I heard about you guys was probably three or four years ago at Paleo FX. And a bunch of people I knew are like, hey, you got to go talk to these guys. They have a website called Keto Gains. And I talked to, you know, Rob Wolf, who was a big fan. And I'm like, Keto Gains? Like, what What are they doing? They're trying to do, like, mass gain with a ketogenic diet? This sounds bizarre. And, like, I didn't understand the concept. And, you know, I had just basically uh, missed you there a few times or maybe had only met you, like, super briefly. And it wasn't until AHS this past year where I actually got to, you know, sit down and talk to both of you guys. We're on a ketogenic panel. And I was like, oh, this is actually kind of a semi-sane approach. It's not what I thought it was at all. Um, so for Luis, what would you define as your guys' kind of working definition of a ketogenic diet? So mine is very brief uh, on uh, because uh, it relates to what I was saying before at the beginning of the, of the podcast. It's uh, a ketogenic diet for me is uh, a diet low enough in carbohydrates carbohydrates that that makes your body produce ketones basically so it's about what you don't eat rather than what you eat because normally it's uh, going to be defined as a high high fat diet low protein and uh, low carb diet and there are various definitions but again it, they don't really have any context and for me uh, going a little bit into metabolic flexibility and getting results uh, both in uh, either performance or fat loss, uh, I think that the, the, the people will get the 
best benefit just by eating a, a nutrient-dense diet, but with just low enough carbohydrates that allow them to get into a degree of ketosis, basically. So, so that's why I define it that way. Cool. And just a quick follow-up question. I'll get Tyler's definition. Do you have a, a cutoff point if they're doing like a blood test for BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate, that you use, or do you just kind of have them go by how they feel and perform? Uh, really, we like uh, there's so many things uh, that people are trying to manage and track every single day that adding one more thing to track can be is sometimes uh, the thing that breaks uh, people, right? Sure. So, uh, we, we really don't encourage people to measure ketones unless uh, they're doing a ketogenic diet for a therapeutic reason or because they are genuinely curious. But what we've uh, seen uh, with us from experience and with a lot of clients is that they think that they, they don't get that magic threshold of ketones. They are not burning fat or that they're going to gain all the weight back or they don't understand why sometimes you may have low ketones but are still in ketosis or sometimes you have super high ketones after you ate uh, you know five kilos of uh, cake and they <laughs> think they're still you know, because things like that happen and yeah. like you have to give them a, a complete dissertation and a thesis to make them understand and so it, it's I don't know it's a good point so I'd rather like you said make them concentrated like you hired us uh, like say for example to lose body fat you're losing body fat. Why are you worried about not having that magic number of ketones? And they'll go like, uh, you're right. Like they, they are obsessing that this is something you see a lot in the ketogenic community about who has the highest ketone number. Just yeah. like now you're seeing with the fasting community. I fasted yeah. for four days and I'm not dead yet. Yeah, like that's amazing. But why did you start dieting in the first place? Oh, because I wanted to lose weight. Okay, so how many kilos you've lost? Uh, again, two. But I'm uh, I have 12 millimoles. Oh, okay, yeah, you have all the ketones, <laughs> but you also have all the fat. So, so that's it. Yeah, got it. And is your definition similar, Tyler? Yeah, I think it, it would fall right in line with with what Luis said. You know, if I, I like that comment that it's about what you're not eating versus what you are eating. You know, ultimately, I think we would all agree that protein needs are relatively fixed. Uh, we could argue kind of the Helms position that calorie deficits necessitate slightly higher protein. But, you know, setting that on a shelf, they're relatively fixed. And so your fat needs relative to your calorie requirements are relatively fixed and they're going to kind of vacillate around your goal. Right. Uh, I think Ted Naiman uses this expression often, and I love it. If your body is high fat, then all you need is the low carb. And I think that that's kind of a, a good way to look at this argument for like low carb, high fat, quote unquote. So, you know, for me, hey, if you're producing ketones, that's great. But in the grand scheme of things, I think that ketones are really a byproduct of what we do, not the goal. Um, you know, the, the big advantage for a lot of folks seems to be, and I think you touched on this a minute ago, Hey, eating lower carbs seems to be a, a a very feasible way for a lot of people to enter a calorie deficit without feeling like they're completely restricted. And if that satiety aspect of a low carb diet, when protein needs are being met, is is good, then by all means, I mean, like let's let's call that a ketogenic diet. Because hey, I don't really care if you're. 20 grams or 50 grams or 70 grams or zero grams. Like I think those are just arbitrary cutoffs and they're about as useful as you telling me what percentage of your calories comes from fat. Well, 
you've got to give me an anchor point. You know, the relative references need absolute measures, right? So we have to have some kind of a fixed number. And we just don't deal in percentages and ratios. I just don't think it's very helpful. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because you have to, the next question is you have to know at least how many calories are at to even get a number. So why don't you just tell me the number to start with? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and the truth of the matter is nobody measures that, right? Like, so, no. so getting back to Luis's point, nobody's actually measuring what they eat. And, and I'm being very broad brush here. I realize that a good percentage of the fitness community does. But there is a good portion of the health and fitness community who thinks that putting food on a food scale and weighing that at least initially is, is uh, unhealthy or disordered eating. And I would raise my hand and say, well, the, the clinical research is pretty clear that people who are overweight tend to underreport their calorie intake. So clearly there is a misalignment between what you're actually eating and what you're self-reporting that you're eating. So, you know, putting people in a space where they measure the things that actually matter rather than measuring arbitrary things that can be affected by menstrual cycle, time of day, how well you slept, your cortisol cycle – you know, your hydration status, all of these things are going to affect your blood ketone levels at any given point in time. Why don't you just spend that five minutes and, you know, not spend $5 a day testing to just put your damn steak on a food scale and write it down so that you know how much you're getting in absolute values without those fixed numbers and those fixed, you know, what you knows, you can't help anybody. You're just guessing. Yeah, I'm sure Lonnie can tell us horror stories of self-reports gone awry. And I'm even at the point now where I just do it initially to get more awareness. Like, I'm not even that super concerned about the accuracy because I know that may be a battle I may want to fight later. But if I can just make them at least more aware, have them write down, they have to stare at it, they got to do a few more action items before they shove it in their pie hole, then I'm probably going to get enough leverage just out of that to get pretty far so yeah and that's perfect i mean at the end of the day it's just about resetting people's understanding your expectations because if you don't then what happens is six weeks or six months in they complain that they're not seeing results and swear up and down that they're adhering to the diet perfectly and then you yeah. just you send me a picture of your six ounce steak and you look at it and it's the 12 ounces six ounce steak you've ever seen or you know, send me a picture of what you cook your asparagus in in a skillet or on a grill. And it's coated in like four tablespoons of butter that they forgot to report or whatever. Like that's the, the real challenge of this whole thing is just getting people to be honest and to, well, getting them to realize they're being dishonest so that you can get them to realize that they need to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've always been interested in kind of sort of the extreme sides of performance. And obviously on Iron Radio, we talk a lot about powerlifting and physique athletes. And, you know, people are a little bit more advanced on the the fitness spectrum. Sure. Um, I'll start with, with Tyler. But what has been kind of your guys' thoughts and experience with someone who is more like a speed and power athlete? I mean, even, you know, on the powerlifting side of the spectrum uh, related to ketogenic diets and even just, carbohydrates amounts i'd be curious what you guys have seen sure so you know to really tackle that there are there's a place for low carbohydrate approaches i don't think that ketogenic approaches really are for excuse the expression the bee's knees here with with regard to specifically 
you know, high performance speed and power, but 99% of people aren't Ronnie Coleman and they're not Usain Bolt. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, that if we're going to talk about that, that say 3%, 5% of the population who are legitimately touching on their, their peak physiologic performance, then yeah, eat the carbohydrates, eat whatever the hell you want. As long as you get protein well enough and you're making sure you get sufficient carbohydrate, it really doesn't matter. And you're going to be burning through so many calories from your training regimen that you're not going to have mineral deficiencies and you're not going to have to wring your hands about micronutrient imbalances and inefficiencies and whatever else. But for the average hour and a half a day in the gym, bro, if you'll excuse the, the pejorative here, um, you know, the, the need for carbohydrate really isn't all that huge. Um, you know, realistically, you know, we routinely see people breaking PRs. We've even had folks go and compete and even medal in, in powerlifting events at an amateur level, you know, on less than 75 grams a day, um, mm. dose dependent. So timing sure. the carbohydrates around the performance, making sure that they're fast acting carbohydrates around performance time. Um, you know, in, in addition to that, um, you know, the bigger issue is when you eat a diet that is effectively low insulin load. You you tend to back your way into this issue where through an angiotensin aldosterone system manipulations, because insulin plays a big part in that conversation, you just shed electrolytes like crazy. And a lot of people think that, oh, low carb equals performance killer. And I would argue that it's not more Cheerios that you need if you know you really want to be in kind of that upper 20% of performance you can do it just fine on 50 60 70 grams of total carbohydrate a day but you damn well better make sure that you have your electrolytes in check cuz you're going to need substantially more than you even think that you're going to need to perform at that level and you know to eat a low carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet very cool. What are your thoughts, Luis? And then I'll get your take, Lonnie. Uh, well, I basically, I agree with a lot of what Tyler was saying. Perfect. Yeah. What's your it's thoughts, almost, Lonnie? It's almost like we—it's almost like we work together or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost like you can read each other's minds at this point. <laughs> so, uh, I guess my question uh, for Tyler would be: Which electrolytes are we talking about? And uh, I mean, not to get down in the weeds too much, but yeah, are we, you know, um, sure. ratios. Um, so you know, all of the above. So I think there's a couple of different ways we can peel that onion back. Um, the first thing that I would say is I'm not a big fan of calcium supplementation, even though the, the links to the potential increased risk of a couple of different kinds of cancer are kind of suspect. It's enough for me to say, you know what, get your freaking calcium from food and chill. Like, I just don't think there's a huge need for you know, for us to supplement calcium in the diet as long as we're not eating like idiots. Um, you know, I think that there's really two ways that you can peel back. If you high-dose potassium, you can spare sodium losses in a low-carb or ketogenic construct. Um, that's actually true across the board. Uh, Higher-dose potassium tends to retain sodium. But uh, um there's just some concerns that I have with that. And one of the reasons when we created an electrolyte product, we went with a lower amount of potassium is look, you run into somebody who's got an undiagnosed heart condition or an undiagnosed kidney failure that hasn't quite manifested itself yet. And then you give them, you know, four to six grams of supplemental potassium in the course of a day. And you run a real risk of, 
you know, giving that person a wonderful case of hyperkalemia and, you know, Lord only knows they'll wind up in the ER and probably sue your pants off in the process, and rightfully so. Um, there are people in the low-carb and even the paleo space who recommend high doses of potassium supplemented throughout the day, and I just can't get on that yeah. bus. I just can't. I think yeah. it's dangerous and stupid. The, the risk-reward just shifts way too far into the risk category for me. Um, the other option is really a higher dose of sodium relative to potassium and just uh, – and that's the approach that we took. We kind of looked at urinary losses and sweat losses and realized that it's really sodium that drives that bus. And so if we're losing sweat in the form of about one gram of salt for every 200 to 250 milligrams of potassium, um, why are we not just putting right back into the body exactly what we're losing, right? Like in the same ratios and the same amounts. And so... For about seven years or so, Luis and I were like playing backyard chemist and mixing these different electrolytes up and trying different ratios and different amounts. And honestly, what we found is high dose sodium intake really seems to make a massive difference in performance. And so, well being all through. Yeah. So, so, so fun story. Um, I actually got into a conversation with a guy who was part of the team that developed Gatorade. Uh, down at University of Florida or whatever. And um, amongst other fun parts of that story, he, he let on that he bothered to try Gatorade recently. And he said, it's not electrolyte drink, it's sugar water. He said, what it used to be is not at all what it is. And he said, I can't, pal-. he's like, He's like, when I drank the stuff that we created, it made a difference in my performance. He's like, now I can't imagine that this is doing anything other than making for hyperactive children. Whereas the way that he couched the whole conversation and I'm like, man, that's a that's an interesting thought that what we think we're getting in the form of electrolytes is not nearly the amount that we need. And, and you know, I was having this conversation with my father, who was a division one football player and you know, he started laughing and I said, What? He said, You you've come full circle. I said, What do you mean? He said you guys are putting out a product that is something that we used to take in pill form during football practice every freaking day when it was hot outside. Yeah, I used to give them salt pills. Salt tabs, absolutely. Yeah. Pop, them, pop them the whole time you were training, you know, three, four, five grams for a two and a half, three hour training session. Oh, well, yeah. You know, why in the world have we decided that sodium is such a dangerous or bad thing? And, you know, Lonnie, the the challenge is when you look at the studies on all-cause mortality and CBD risk and high-dose sodium, it's an inverted U-curve with a long tail. So the risk of too little is massively dangerous. And then there is a scale out to... If we ate at kind of that thousand milligram target that I've been heard bandied about now, we we would need to eat about fifteen to twenty grams of salt a day in order to reflect the same risk on the other side of that U curve. So, you know, we just went down the path of saying, Hey, why don't we just dose salt? Why don't we drink some broth? Why don't we throw some salt in coffee? Why don't we, you know, eat intentionally salty foods like beef jerky and things like that? And honestly, it makes such a massive difference in performance that, you know, we've been recommending and banging on this drum for seven years now. And it's good to see guys like Stan and others out there in the the strength space going, hey, setting keto aside, freaking salt is a magic ergogenic for training and and always has been. Now, I I need to at least challenge you. Obviously, there's a lot of refined foods 
in the food supply. Sodium is very pervasive. <clears throat> Excuse me. The average American, at least, is getting many times the amount of sodium that they need. Uh, it sounds like to me maybe a population specificity thing where if you're sweating your butt off for three hours at a time, that's one thing. But for the average person, I mean, you must realize that it's very controversial that you're going to put more sodium into their diets. Of course. But uh, we, we, we do have to understand that, for example, our recommendations are more so for people that follow a uh, low-carb whole food approach. Because if you actually look at uh, what people are eating, of course, it's uh, high in sodium, but it's artificially added in. The food normally doesn't need, uh, has that much sodium. If you eat basically uh, whole foods, again, meats, vegetables, some fruit, whatever, uh, without processed food, you are really not going to get uh, an adequate level of sodium. And even less if you are uh, training and even less at a high performance level. Uh, and this is a, a thing that I always try to explain to people when we're discussing subjects like this. All major civilizations in human culture, in the, human, in the history of humans, have always uh, been uh, developed or, or built cities and so on near big uh, rivers and salt deposits. That's one thing. Uh, we humans uh, tend to seek out salt because not only because it improves performance, because it's necessary for living, like uh, just as any animal does. So right now, yeah, we add salt artificially, just like, you know, you see lucky charms with added vitamins and minerals because by themselves, they don't have what you need. If you're talking about a typical American who eats a standard American diet at your diet consists of uh, Big Macs and um, chicken McNuggets. So, well, of course, that's super high in sodium, and so it doesn't make sense to add more sodium. But again, if we go back to people eating mostly whole foods, then there's a need to increase electrolytes. Okay. Yeah. And I would I would agree completely. Um, you know, money, and I would agree with you. I do think it's population dependent. If your diet is sufficient in sodium, then by all means. But I would challenge the narrative of some 1,800 or two, uh, two gram uh, sort of a limit out there because the data on CBD and all-cause mortality just does not support that sodium above two grams is in any way detrimental. In fact, out to about 10 grams or 12 grams a day, it's effectively neutral in terms of risk in both CBD and all-cause Um you know, versus eating about 1,500 to 2,000 milligrams a day. And the sweet spot for the the least risk is actually between about four and six grams of sodium a day. And what I would point out, more specifically four to six grams of salt a day. And what I would point out is when you look at the studies that have looked at different populations across the world, where do they tend to land? It's about three to seven or eight grams of salt a day. That is the modern diet's total sodium load a across the studies that I've seen. And so I think that there is kind of a natural inclination to consume more sodium. And I'm, I do concern myself that one of the reasons, you know, one of the solutions to that problem when we started making low sodium foods rather than salting our food liberally with whatever our flavor palate prefers um, has become, oh, we'll just add more sugar or more fat to this product to make it taste better because otherwise it's bland because salt enhances the flavor of anything it goes on. So 
You know, so I, I would agree in part, but I would also point out that if we look at the research data, people are already eating most people three to you know three to seven grams of salt a day, depending on the demographic you're looking at. But when they go to a very paleo, very you know, especially a lower carb paleo approach, there's not the food available to get anywhere near that amount of sodium. In. Right. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Right. If um, to Luis's point about if pe- if you're eating nothing but unprocessed meats and vegetables, then maybe you're, you are actually low on sodium, as unusual as that could be. I guess my concern would be like, well, in the article I was talking about earlier by that Dr. Sloan, I mean, the DASH diet, right, the dietary approaches to stop hypertension is number two on their list for health and compliance. And that's a, that's a higher calcium, lower sodium approach, right? And when you think that one third to one half of people are sodium sensitive from a hypertension point of view, right? I, I, I guess I'm just pointing out that some of this you guys must realize is controversial, especially sure. if you're going to talk to dietitians and the standard so, approaches, right? Sure. So, so there's, there's three things I would put out there. Um, firstly, we should really consider insulin's effect on hypertension in general. So when you lower the insulin load of a diet, you tend to lower a person's blood pressure inherently. And so in a lot of cases, we have clients who are taking medications for hypertension that wind up having to go back to their doctor and come off of those medications almost immediately just because changing the insulin for, you know, the insulin load of a diet tends to materially affect that. And then, or weight loss you know, as well, you know, right? I mean, obviously, you can't extract one from the other. But the other thing that I would say is that realistically, it depends on how we define salt sensitive hypertension, right? Because almost everybody who consumes salt will see higher doses of sodium will see a three to five point bump in the systole and the diastole without question. But whether that's materially impactful is a completely different conversation because I would point back to the fact that those figures, that that 120 over 80 or what they're calling what 115 over 75 now is the golden standard, if you go back and trace where those numbers actually came from, generally speaking, they came from the companies who were manufacturing the products to lower hypertension. So um, there were at least, you know, in our lifetimes, there were doctors who were pushing back and rejecting those definitions and saying if somebody is not showing any indications of hypertension or any consequences of hypertension, then they're not hypertensive. I don't, not an MD, not a PhD, and I'm not going to start pounding that drum hard, but I would say it's not quite as clear cut and dry as maybe dietetics textbooks and physiology textbooks would like to make it with respect to you know, to those conversations, I would also add that as human beings are physically getting larger, you know, there is going to be a physiologic change in blood pressure, especially with the extremities. So it's just something to consider. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we typically see about 10% of people who we work with that are salt sensitive hypertensive. And that's kind of in keeping with radical salt sensitive hypertension. And for those folks to be frank, they're really not great candidates for a low insulin low diet. We typically migrate them into more of a paleo diet and work with them in a space where they don't need the salt to be nearly as high and they don't really need to be so restrictive with their diet because their genetics just don't lend themselves well to it. Well, just quickly then, I mean, with a third of people being pre-diabetic and about a third of people being hypertensive, at least mildly so, how do you guys handle 
like a referral? Do you ever feel that pressure to make a referral to a dietitian or something like that to handle something that's more of a medical nutrition therapy issue? Or yeah, how do you do that? <clears throat> how do you do that? That's, uh, with people we, we coach directly, we are very open and, and say that all, all our recommendations are mostly for a body recomposition and fat loss. So we don't really uh, review any clinical uh, or direct clinical things. And we do ask for uh, reviewing those things with uh, their doctor. In, in the case that they may have an actual condition that requires uh, supervision, we won't even train them. Uh, unless, again, we get the, the, the letter of approval. Right. And I'm not trying to be some type of a nutrition police here by any means, because, of course, it depends where no. you even live. In my state, the dietitians, and I mean, I am one, but they are very, very sensitive and protective of the practice of dietetics of being a licensed thing. It's, it's like oh, yeah. den- dentistry or something else. We don't just decide to start being a dental coach. You know, no, of course. Um, that sort and, uh, of idea, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing that we do very, uh, we try to manage very carefully is that um, even though it's, uh, you probably just see <clears throat> Tyler and, and, and us as a face of key against, my wife is a plastic surgeon, for example. Uh, we have very good uh, friends that uh, excel in other areas, such as endocrinology uh, and so on. And so some cases we consult with them and based on, on what they, they suggest, we Either take the clients if it's just a minimal change and we can help them, or we just outright uh, refer them to a professional that will do a much better job than us. Because again, uh, we are we may be experts in uh, fat loss and uh, changing mindset, but again, we are not uh, qualified to you know give uh, advice or help people in other areas. So we try to be very ethical and direct on on that regard. Yeah, I think the most interesting thing that you guys are bringing to light uh, for me, one of the more interesting things is that population specificity is so true here in that when someone is eating um, a ketogenic diet, if they're eating a whole food, non-processed, high vegetable, lean meats, you know, protein source diet uh, up to a point um, and exercising, then everything from electrolyte needs to... I mean, God knows what else. I mean, you're sort of in not uncharted, but less charted territory, right, where a lot of the standard guidelines may or may not apply, right, because this is a very niche type of um, uh, of population. Yeah. Yeah. And my quick comment on there, and we'll have one question to wrap up here, is that, I mean, just recently I was at uh, Dr. Ben House's place again in Costa Rica, and we were doing um, so a study. Yeah, it was amazing again. And we're doing an acute study on, you know, more experienced lifters. People have been lifting for quite a while, four days of the exact same training, full body, took about two hours to complete each training session. And it's warmer down there. You know, when I'm there in March, it's usually quite a bit warmer. But the running joke every time I, I go down there, and I've been down there a couple of times in March too, is that I like keep pushing salt shakers in front of people. They're like, what? Mm-hmm. You want me mm-hmm. to salt my food more? I'm like, one, when you're down there, you're eating all, you know, whole foods, you know, white rice, you know, vegetables they source there, lean meats. So you're not really getting any processed foods at all. Two, it's humid as all heck. You know, three, they're all, you know, healthy individuals who show up. And then you're sweating and training in the gym for, you know, one to two hours a day. You know, so all those things combined, the need for just the main electrolyte, which is lost to sodium, goes up pretty substantially. But to Lonnie's point, too, and your guys' point, that compared to the average person that's like so 
so much a subset niche mm-hmm. too that it becomes very context specific. Yeah. That, you know, the average person who's, you know, their butt looks like a couch cushion who doesn't exercise, eating mostly processed foods, like they're the inverse. Their sodium, you could argue, is maybe a little bit too high, but we can't generalize from that person to other hyper-specific situations either. So, and mm-hmm. context is hard because everybody wants that salt is good. No, it's bad. It's good. It's bad. And like we just discussed, it's very context specific too. Well, there's even the, I mean, with low compliance being talked about with different kinds of specialty diets, including keto, it's interesting to me that we're talking about that NASA research, a couple of papers that came out recently, how it increases appetite sodium does. And that could be great for weight gain, but that could be bad for a, you know, negative energy balance, like compliance kind of thing, you know? So yeah, it's fascinating to kind of look at the interconnection between things that the average person probably wouldn't even connect, you know, like electrolytes and then low carbs or something like that. And I think the sodium thing is a really interesting thing because I think salt added to food tends to make food more palatable. And if we jump into the conversation of hyperpalatability of food, yeah, absolutely. It tends to drive additional calorie consumption, but when it's consumed sort of separate of foods, you know, like in broth or in a drink or, or as a capsule, we actually see it, functioning more as like a satiety mechanism, which is a really weird conversation that I have no clinical data to justify. It's just a complete observation that we've seen. So, and I've seen it replicated over a thousand clients now, a little more. So, um, you know, it's just a, every time we, it's like uh, human physiology is a game of whack-a-mole, right? Every time we think we have it all pinned down and pegged out, somebody finds another pathway and another whack-a-mole pops up and we got to bop that one on the head too. So, mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, my last quick question for you guys is, I'll go to Louise first. What would you say for the average person, the typical clientele you work with who is doing your uh, ketogenic type approach, which you defined, what do you see as the biggest mistake that they make and what would be the way to resolve it? The biggest mistake, uh, like uh, people that basically train with us uh what we do is we ask them to come with an empty cup to forget everything they know about diet and keto and uh this is something uh, that you probably also seen mike but you start to study nutrition and uh you know uh, become a coach to help people lose weight uh, in most cases uh of course those that are not specialized in performance and uh so you think it's about giving people a list of foods to eat and to not eat and what is healthier and what is not and so on and so forth. But when you actually start coaching people and the, the, the more you, years you are in the trenches, you realize that it's not about really about food. It's about behavior. So what we do with people is just help them get over their personal hurdles because right now what we see is people and and we see and i i mean also myself i was in that place at one time in my life we use food as a coping mechanism for everything or uh we use food not just as a coping mechanism as something that, because it's something so ingrained with human nature of course it it's uh, something we use either to celebrate or to, you know, uh, when we're at a bad time also, we get to forget. So we help people find these uh, limiting factors and why they're using food without even realizing. 
and why this is counterproductive for their goals. So it's much like a, a, an introspection, and, and that's what we do with our clients. It doesn't really matter if it's keto or it's a, 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 a higher carb diet. One can lose weight in any with any diet, but the reason you are mostly overweight, it's not because of your hormones or because you have Hashimoto's or because you're not uh, maybe so active or or whatever. It's because you're eating probably too much and you're eating too much because you're just created an unhealthy behavior where you use food as a coping mechanism. Yeah, they only have a they're only using a biochemical solution to change their state, right? They haven't quite exactly. mastered like, biopsych or movement options yet. I'm not into that camp where uh, they uh, people say that uh, sugar is a drug and you're addicted to sugar. Uh, but we are indeed addicted, in a way, to feeling good. And so eating delicious food, of course, makes you forget for about five or ten minutes Uh anything. It's just that they're stressed and they want to have this uh, way out and eating is uh, a, a kind of way of distressing for, for, for some people. Yeah. Food is their resolution to the stress. Exactly. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that question, Tyler? You know, again, I would echo a lot of what Luis said. Um, the, the thing that I see most often is that people come with expectation and, and I would you know, I always tell people that I operate my life with zero expectation. And I think that it's a reasonably healthy approach because there's a great deal of things that we can't control that we like to pretend we can control. Um, you know, the, the reality is the only things that we really have control of are our mindset and our attention to detail. And if we'll focus on those things, typically the outcomes will follow, but not until then. So, it kind of tiptoes around them to your cup would also be to show up with no expectation. And that way you're pleasantly surprised every time you make progress. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for being on here and where can listeners find out more about what you got going on? So uh, we're in ketogains.com uh, and everything you see on the web uh, with uh, ketogains is basically us. Uh, so it's a, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Reddit, uh, Twitter, and yeah, and, and even you can mail us at info at ketogains.com. Awesome. And you also do have an electrolyte also that you help with, uh, Element, correct? So yeah, we actually created an electrolyte drink uh, actually around kind of sweat replacement. Um, so we're one year into that. It's actually at drinkelement.com. That's drink the letters lmnt.com. And I've joked that we're terrible at social media marketing because uh, we didn't realize that was a boy band in the 90s. But, uh, but yeah, that's us as well. I uh, actually co-founded that with Rob Wolf and his wonderful wife, Nikki, and some partner friends of ours that have been in the paleo and keto space for a while. Uh, we're helping with the logistics and operations as well. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you guys very much for being on here. Thanks, Any guys. Last guys. words, Lonnie? Nope. Just thanks for coming on. Thank yeah. you. Thanks so sense. much. Appreciate it. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our halls of iron store and 
choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.